This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing an organ system that maybe doesn't get the respect it deserves. But when there's impairment in its function, it has a major impact on a patient's energy level, can have a significant impact on their diet, and may limit the medications we commonly prescribe or, as a minimum, at least alter their dosages. I'm talking about the renal system and chronic kidney disease. It's estimated that kidney disease affects nearly 40 million people in the United States, or 15% of the population, and two of five adults with severe kidney disease don't even know they have it. As primary care providers, we need to know how to prevent kidney disease, how to assess renal function, and how to manage those with moderate to severe renal impairment. Our guest for today's podcast is Dr. Mira Kettis, a nephrologist at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Mira, welcome and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Well, let's start out by asking you to define chronic kidney disease. What's a good definition? Yeah, great question. Chronic kidney disease has a two-part definition. One part is probably the easiest and fastest to ascertain because it comes from an objective blood draw, namely EGFR, and most labs nowadays would report that. So the EGFR-based definition is an EGFR less than 60 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared it's always adjusted for an ideal body surface area and has to be present for a minimum of three months. The second part of the definition is an objective finding of some kidney damage, and that could be abnormal imaging. So, for example, kidney ultrasound or CT was done perhaps for other reasons, and you found out that the kidneys are atrophic or maybe you discovered brand new hydronephrosis, or perhaps you did a urine analysis for something else and you found out that the patient has abnormal protein or blood in the urine that's not from a urological cause, or perhaps they have a strong family history of polycystic kidney disease and lo and behold, you find the patient has cysts on their kidney, or maybe they needed a kidney biopsy because of a lot of spilling of proteins, so their GFR may be perfectly normal, but you identified an objective finding consistent with kidney damage. So if you either have an objective finding of abnormality, whether it be kidney biopsy, urine analysis, renal imaging, or you have a GFR that's less than 60 for more than three months. So you mentioned GFR, and we haven't been given that for a long time. I remember when I first started, we had the serum creatinine. Uh, Is creatinine an accurate reflection of one's kidney function? Yeah, that's a great question, Daryl. And I see that may evolve in the future. But what has helped us define the disease and increase awareness is really by being able to rely on creatinine being a very easily cost-effective, accessible test. And there has been an evolution of equations. So these are equations to try to guess what is the GFR of a patient based on a creatinine value that performs 
as good as possible to what we would consider a gold standard test. Mayo Clinic, we use IETELMIC clearance test, but this is not a test that's easily accessible for other maybe private practice groups or even other institutions. So we have to find something that's accessible and easy and cost effective that does a reasonably good job in estimating function. So we use creatinine to estimate function using the most up-to-date equation. And really the most up-to-date equation is called the CKD epi. And practitioners, if they don't have the GFR already built in in their lab reporting, you can just go to a website called mdrd.com, put in your creatinine value, put in the age, put in the patient's sex, and then you'll be able to get what that GFR value is. Now, you asked the question about, is creatinine a good marker? Well, it's a decent marker to make it accessible for everyone to be able to estimate kidney function. There are some pitfalls to the use of creatinine because creatinine in of itself is not harmful. It's a byproduct of creatine phosphatase metabolism, which is in your skeletal muscles. And it really is linked to your skeletal muscle metabolism. It can be influenced by high animal protein intake or perhaps creatine supplements, which uh, have been historically used for muscle building. And so there are some barriers to using creatinine as a marker of kidney function if you are dealing with a patient where you suspect that their muscle mass or muscle metabolism might be altered. In fact, I had a case of a patient who was paraplegic and the creatinine looked perfectly normal. And as when we pursued other equations or other ways to assess kidney function, this gentleman had quite advanced chronic kidney disease. So some caveats have to be considered where you really need to question the accuracy of creatinine. And the biggest group of patients are gonna be those that you question the health of their muscles, whether it be because of an underlying disease like a muscular dystrophy or paraplegia or amputations or extremes of muscle mass. You know, you could have the really muscular person with quote unquote kidney disease because their creatinine is high or really cachectic and significant muscle wasting like you see in patients with cirrhosis, for example. Yeah, as a geriatrician, you know, we're often seeing patients with some degree of renal impairment and occasionally we'll see an elderly patient with very little lean body mass and their creatinine may be completely normal, yet they can have significant uh, renal function impairment. So uh, it's helpful when it's elevated, when it's normal, you have to maybe take other things into account. Well, let's talk about the causes of uh, chronic kidney disease. What are, what are some of the more common things? I think that's the wonderful beauty of collaborating and working hand in hand with our primary care providers because they see these cases day in, day out. A lot of diabetes. So diabetes is the leading cause of chronic kidney disease, and that's really worldwide. Then you've got hypertension, again, extremely commonly encountered a comorbidity in the clinic. Now, as you go down the list of things, there is some variability. So there's a lot of data suggesting that patients who have underlying heart disease, they're also at risk for kidney disease. This phenomenon we know as cardiorenal syndrome. Patients with autoimmune diseases are also a risk for chronic kidney disease. Family history is actually really powerful. Autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease is the most common genetic form of kidney disease and accounts for a large proportion of patients who end up on dialysis. And so recognizing that hereditary causes do have value and can inform someone's risk 
is really important. So I think these would probably be the top ones. Now, there are also glomerular causes, but then you kind of have to go hunting for those to identify. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking for a cause, is it usually pretty obvious or do you have to look fairly thoroughly to find the cause? I think the probably to me the most obvious is the diabetic, right? Yeah. Typically, they don't have kidney disease the same day they're diagnosed with diabetes. It's usually an evolution. You're very empowered with data about what their hemoglobin A1C has been over time, what their albumin to creatinine ratio has been over time. So really the key is having context and timeline to be able to attribute a comorbidity with the cause of kidney disease. So diabetes to me is one of the easier ones because of that long longitudinal monitoring that takes place. In a similar fashion, hypertension, you know, your one drug essential hypertension patient, their risk of chronic kidney disease is not going to be as high as your resistant hypertension for plus medication who've had an organ complications other than the kidney from hypertension. I think there is a place to go digging. And I think that's an important point. If you cannot attribute a patient comorbidity uh, to explain a low GFR, then really your next step is to look, okay? So what could it be? Could it be a medication, for example? And we think about NSAIDs as our main evil. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. The neurologists are, are pretty hard on NSAIDs as being a culprit for a lot of badness in terms of kidney health. And even uh, maybe even PPI therapy, and no, there's, it's an association that we strongly recommend or, or at least screen for regular use of PPI. And is that something that we can attribute as a potential risk? And just to kind of close that loop, if you cannot attribute a cause or a comorbidity, then this is when perhaps engaging with a nephrologist would be quite appropriate to make sure that cross all your T's dotted all your I's and we're not missing an opportunity to reverse or better understand the problem. Sure. So as one's kidney impairment worsens, what are some of the complications we can see that are extra renal or maybe some of the blood abnormalities that we may discover as a result of more advanced kidney function impairment? That is linked very strongly with V of GFR. Early on, the most common complication, believe it or not, is hypertension. And it may be as simple as this is a patient who was controlled really well with one or two drug therapy. And then as you notice, the GFR is drifting down, maybe in that 45 to 59 range, you're noticing you have to give them more meds to get them to their gold blood pressure. So hypertension is the very first early sign. They also start getting uh, more predisposition to edema. They tend to hold on to salt. So that gives you a little bit of a clue of what their dietary salt intake is. If they're going a little bit overboard, they're going to have a higher predisposition to developing edema than someone who has a perfectly normal GFR. And really the bulk of the complications that we manage really hit when GFR drops less than 30. And that is a group of patients that we uh, strongly encourage referral to nephrology for. But things that we would expect that may become abnormal, think about potassium, especially depending on what other medications they're on that can predispose to that. Acid-base balance, you can start seeing clues for more acidosis building up. It can be anion or non-anion gap acidosis. So you'll see drift down in their bicarbonate level. 
phosphorus levels tend to start climbing a little bit later in that less than 30 stage, but that's another complication we worry about. And obviously anemia. Most of the time, the, the degree of anemia that would necessitate treatment think with things like erythropoietin stimulating agents, you'll see that when the GFR has drifted, we're close to, we're talking about 15, 20, or even below. But early on, I would say in that 30 range, you may start detecting some functional iron deficiency anemia, where the ferritin is not your typically low ferritin that you use to diagnose a healthy person with iron deficiency or somebody with a healthy kidney with iron deficiency. We look at a lot different cutoffs of iron deficiency in chronic kidney disease. So if you're Ferritin is, is less than 500 and your percent saturation is uh, less than 30, even though these numbers seem like they're high numbers, that's how we define a possibility of iron deficiency and pursue iron replacement. And so anemia starts off with iron deficiency before it progresses to be an EPO deficiency or EPO resistant state, potassium imbalance, mainly hyperkalemia acid-base disorders, primarily in metabolic acidosis, and then hyperphosphatemia, along with a host of other mineral metabolism problems, a high PTH, a low vitamin D, a normal to low calcium. These kind of a bundle of abnormalities that evolve typically later in the course. Mm -hmm. We do take our kidneys for granted in most cases, but you know, as they start failing, the management of patients with moderate to severe renal function impairment becomes very complicated and challenging, especially for a primary care provider. So when should we refer our patients to nephrology? Yeah, it's a great question, Daryl. And I think a lot of it depends on the resources. You want to make sure you have a, a team of, of nephrologists or a specialist group that can care for your patients that are accessible in a timely fashion. So I understand that can be a barrier depending on where you practice. The general rule is if your GFR is less than 30, these patients absolutely need to have a nephrologist as part of their care because a host of complications occurs. And that's when some difficult discussions have to be had about preparation. Okay, you're less than 30. Look at other risk factors. What does the future look like to you in two or five years so we can prepare adequately? If there are patients that have significant proteinuria, regardless of the GFR, if you've got proteinuria greater than 300 milligrams, specifically albuminuria or albumin to creatinine ratio, there's a value in engaging with nephrologists. It may be a one-point check-in rather than a longitudinal follow-up. And uh, clearly, if they have much more significant proteinuria or an active urine sediment, so if you've done a UA and they keep having blood and protein and they don't have urological cause or explanation for the hematuria, then early referral to nephrology to evaluate for glomerular disease would be warranted. Yeah. Well, you made a very interesting comment that we at Mayo are very fortunate that we have some excellent colleagues in nephrology, and they're very, very helpful when we have patients with renal impairment. But some of our colleagues out in uh, the rural practice um, may have access to a nephrologist you know, from a distance, but they're gonna to have to manage these patients by themselves. So what do they need to be wary of that they can do a good job and take care of these patients? I admire our primary care providers who really carry on a lot of specialist hats and, and do it beautifully well. Really optimizing risk factors. So reviewing medications, you alluded to that earlier, Daryl, you know, what medications are safe or no longer safe, right? When that GFR is less than 30. And that's a really key cutoff for a lot of medications to come off the table. 
Some of them are things as common as metformin, for example. And so having incorporate into their clinical approach of patients with GFR less than 30, that's really one of the key steps are, what should I get rid of medication-wise? What can I add? And making sure they're not taking anything over the counter that may be harmful to the kidney. And that's a group of patients that I advise strongly be careful about what supplements you choose to bring into your system because your kidney is really working too hard and you don't want to add additional stress. So be extra cognizant about the use of supplements when the GFR is less than 30. And then tackle the blood pressure. Make sure it's as controlled as can be. That's one way you can delay the progression of the disease, manage the diabetes, uh, optimize those risk factors, hyperlipidemia, making sure that from a cardiovascular standpoint, they're getting the right exercise that they need. And you're really just shepherding their kidney through the process and trying to delay the progression. You're, you're slowing it down. You're not halting it. And I think that's really the key. When it comes to talks about planning for dialysis or transplant, I, I think that's really where having a nephrologist is really critical. Yeah. I'm going to get to that in a second, but Mira, let me ask about when diet becomes important. What kind of dietary changes are these patients going to have to make? And also fluid restrictions or what kind of fluid recommendations do you give these patients? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. There was actually some recent work about do fluids prevent chronic kidney disease? Yes or no. And I think the verdict is still out there. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. no strong evidence to support that drinking more fluids will protect your kidney. I think one main message I'd like our listeners to, to take is individualizing the diet is critical. And it has to be individualized to their what their labs look like, as well as what their degree of GFR is. Uh, it's always disheartening to me when my patients do a lot of research and follow a really awfully strict kidney diet, because that's what's available online, when it was maybe not appropriate for them. So a kidney diet for somebody with a GFR less than 30 is going to look very different than someone a diet for someone with a GFR in the 40s or the 50s. The general rule is if your kidney function is between that 30 to 59, really the focus should be on cardiovascular health because that stage or that range of GFR, assuming everything stays constant, those patients are less likely to progress towards kidney failure or needing dialysis, and they're more likely to die from a cardiovascular event. So really gearing their diet towards what their highest risk is, is key. And then with a cardiovascular diet, obviously you talk about the low salt, hydration. I don't have a high or a low. I I, I tell patients hydrate to thirst. You know, if you're exercising, make sure you compensate for those insensible losses. But I don't put a limit when you're in that, I would call, safe zone of GFR ranges. Once the GFR drops less than 30, it's a different ballgame. And the restrictions, believe it or not, Daryl, are not necessarily the healthiest either. Uh, because you're reducing perhaps the use of fruits and vegetables because of a high potassium. You're reducing the use of phosphorus, which is typically in dairy and nuts and legumes and a whole grain, all the things that you recommend a patient to have. It's a very restrictive diet and it's not targeting the risk anymore. It's, that's not a diet that's protective to the heart in any way. All that diet is doing is preventing the buildup of these toxins to buy you time and delay the need to start dialysis. I hope that kind of addresses it a little bit. I know it's vague, but... Yeah, no, it's, it's just a very complicated balancing act. And 
But you did mention dialysis. So let's talk about that. When should dialysis be considered for patients with chronic kidney disease? So the definition of kidney failure is a GFR less than 15. There have been some large studies asking the question, is it better to start dialysis early versus late? And when I say early versus late, they are comparing a GFR 7, for example, versus a GFR of 10. Does it matter? And the results were essentially, no, it doesn't. And it really comes down to how is the patient feeling and are you able to manage the complications of chronic kidney disease medically or not? So I tell my patients, there's no GFR cutoff to say, bingo, we better have a dialysis catheter and start dialysis now. You have to look at both. You have to look at your labs. Can I control your potassium with a loop diuretic? Can I manage your hypertension by increasing the number of antihypertensive medications? If I'm able to succeed with medical management alone, I drag it out. If I'm running into problems or I'm hearing from a spouse or a partner, I'm noticing that they're not eating as much. They're losing weight. They're getting shorter breath easily. I'm noticing they're getting more confused or they're having some memory issues. So sometimes the buildup of uremia can be subtle enough that a patient may not be able to express that. And it does take some collateral information to say, boy, I think you have what we call failure to thrive. And that mm -hmm. failure to thrive is from a buildup of uremic toxins that even though your GFR may be 10 or 11, dialysis may help you feel better. It's really a discussion based on symptoms and labs. And finally, one more question, which probably isn't fair to ask, because we could probably spend a half hour on this question alone, but who is a candidate for a renal transplant? I think transplant is a beautiful way to give patients hope, because once they go down that train of a GFR less than 30 or less than 20, these are tough discussions with patients. And so it's a beautiful way to empower patients to say, hey, if you get all your risk factors under control, if you do not have a cardiovascular limitation that is prohibitive, you don't have an active malignancy that requires treatment, you don't have an active infection, really these are kind of your three big umbrellas. Age is becoming relative. You know, in our Mayo Clinic in Arizona, they've transplanted a number of patients who are 80 plus. And so taking care of your health can go a long way in terms of the things that you can control. But malignancy that's in remission, and it's just because you had malignancy doesn't rule you out. And there are different criteria for different types of cancers in terms of how long you need to be in remission for before you can become a candidate. Again, no active infection and a, a heart that's strong enough to withstand the surgery and benefit from transplant. Right. Well, Mary, you've covered a lot of ground. Can you give maybe two or three key points which summarize our discussion on chronic kidney disease? Yeah, absolutely. This was an absolute joy. So chronic kidney disease is common. Keep an eye on it. Don't just rely on a GFR to make a diagnosis. Think about checking the urine. Look for protein. Every patient that you're questioning chronic kidney disease on should have some form of kidney imaging at least once to see if there is some other structural abnormalities. So remember your definition of CKD, an objective abnormality or a GFR decline. Remember a cutoff less than 30, that's a magic number to refer to nephrology and be prepared for some other complications that can, can ensue with chronic kidney disease. 
Dialysis is a decision that's shared between the provider and the patient based on symptoms and signs and lab findings. It's not a GFR cutoff. And lastly, that transplant gives patients hope and empowering them with that as an option will be really critical. We've been discussing chronic kidney disease with Dr. Mira Kedis, a nephrologist at the Mayo Clinic. Mira, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. This was a fascinating discussion. Thank you. You're welcome. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.